Hey everybody, and welcome back to the greatest podcast in American history, also known as Dan Dude, What the Heck Happened to America. I'm your host, Dylan Shear, and today we're talking about the Great Depression, the end of the Gilded Age. Right, so we've been do- going through uh, American history since you know the end of uh, the Civil War, starting with Reconstruction, and now we're up to the Great Depression. So far, you know, sort of the Industrial Revolution has been the big centerpiece of our discussions in this podcast, right? We've talked about sort of its effects, immediate effects out in the South and the West, you know, and then moving on through how people were reacting to the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Revolution War, right? World War One, And now we're looking at sort of like the end of the highs of the Great Depression, right? So the economic crash, in part created by Industrial Revolution itself, right? You know, coming out the Industrial Revolution, we had these huge increases in manufacturing, you know, people were making lots of money hand over fist, uh, and sort of the average wealth, too, was rising. It wasn't just the people at the top making a lot of money, but more and more people across the United States were making money as well. And that led to some very uh, specific things, some big weaknesses in the U.S. economy, and it all comes crashing down with the Great Depression. So that's what we're talking about on today's podcast, or, you know, a very uplifting Subject, but an important one nonetheless. So we're going to look at a couple things here today. One, causes of the Great Depression, right? So why did it come about? You know, this isn't an economics podcast. We're not going to go into the nitty gritty details, but we'll get some of the big overarching structures and uh, causes behind the Great Depression. We'll look at culture and life during the Great Depression. So what did it actually look like for people living through this, right? What new things came into the culture during the Great Depression as a result of, you know, the the GD, uh, and then what just sort of general life was. And then we'll also talk a little bit about the rise of a radical politics in response to this economic uh, sort of woe that was going on in the United States. Some major questions here to think about, right? Was the Great Depression inevitable? Uh, I've sort of hinted at answers to this before in previous podcasts, uh, but did the Great Depression have to happen? Uh, in what ways did the American did Americans deal with the Depression, right? So how did people react to uh, and try to incorporate this into their lives, this new economic reality? And then finally, what were the effects of the uh, sorry, were the effects of the Great Depression felt equally across the United States, right? That everyone in the U.S. have sort of the same experience with the Great Depression. So some things to sort of remember from previous podcasts here as we go into this, right? Um, one sort of from last week's podcast, the popularity of stock investment in the 1920s, right? So remember, we talked about that with the sort of real estate crash in Florida after the hurricanes, but then also people were buying lots of stock. Uh, sort of what Europe looked like. Uh, with regards to trade relations to the United States post-World War One, right? Remember, lots of Europeans have been buying American goods in the immediate aftermath of World War One. Uh, the effects of the Treaty of Versailles, right? What it tried to do, it made Germany pay for basically the whole war, give huge amounts of money to, to the victorious countries. And then the rise of these business-first Republicans, right? So people like uh, Cal Coolidge, Silent, Ca- Silent Cal, right? And this new focus on a hands-off uh, laissez-faire sort of attitude toward the economy from these Republicans who were in charge. Okay, so before we get into the meat of all this lecture, I like to do these little biographies of people. And today's biography is about Maud White Cats. 
Uh, she was a black political organizer uh, for the Communist Party, the CPUSA, during the Great Depression. Uh, she worked as a member of the Needle Trades Union uh, for a time. She lived in Chicago. Uh, was also in Pennsylvania and then New York as well. Uh, she was the first black woman to enroll in the Communist University of the Toilers of the East. That's a very long name. Uh, that's a Russian university, also known as the Far East University, uh, that was teaching, you know, political organizers across the world sort of communist tactics, right? She took classes on Marx and Lenin and all these guys, but then also organizing tactics uh, as well. She spent three years living in uh, the Soviet Union, sort of part of this of this cr- training, right? This revolutionary training school for like important communist political leaders. Uh, she said about her time here that it really helped her realize that women, uh, quote, constituted the vanguard for transformative change. Uh, Katz herself came from this, you know, working class family. She was assigned by CPUSA to sort of work with unions during her time with the party. She worked a, re- a regular, you know, nine to five, uh, quote unquote, job on top of this as well, and sort of was instrumental in CPUSA's decision uh, to run campaigns against what they called white chauvinism. Right, so this sort of, uh, you know, male centered whiteness idea and she was a big part of their campaign to run against that it wasn't just mod cat white cats there's other black women like louise thompson who also ended up visiting uh, the soviet union during the great depression to go through this training as well uh they're quoted as saying it turned them from leftists into revolutionaries right there's a pretty famous picture of lots of these sort of black americans uh at at this uh, far east university uh and just sort of the point of talking about all this is that the Great Depression, right, created radicals out of many Americans, um, which really scared a lot of political and business leaders. And that's going to be a bit of foreshadowing uh, for our next podcast on the New Deal. So look forward to that. Okay, so the Great Depression begins, right? Where we left off from last week was you have the roaring 20s, right? Everything is feeling good. People are loving it. The stock market is just going up, you know. Average salaries increased from like one fifty to five dollars a day. People now had you know radios in their houses. They had refrigerators and all this new stuff. Electricity was spreading all over the world. People were bopping out to jazz music. Everything seems really awesome. Uh, and the Republicans hoped this would continue, right? They elected Herbert Hoover into office in 1928, who took office in 1929, uh, right? Sort of on this idea, we're just going to continue what was working for us under Coolidge, under these other guys, right? Uh, we'll just, he'll just keep the job up. You know, he's Herbert Hoover was part had been part of earlier administrations, seen as this really, really smart guy, uh, and very much a sort of hands-off uh, the economy from the federal government type of president. But just eight months after he took office, after his election, sorry, uh, he had to deal with the worst financial crisis in American history, and he was very much not up to the job. Uh, He sort of flailed around horrifically. Uh, The Great Depression was a horrible time to live in the United States for most people. It was not a good time to be in America. Starvation was a threat for millions of Americans. Uh, something which hadn't really been the case prior to this, at least for a very long time for many people. Uh, in some places, unemployment was up to 50%, right? Massive, massive. So one in every other person did not have a job, could not afford food. 
Millions of people lost family members to starvation. They lost jobs. They lost houses and their lives to the Great Depression, right? People were ruined. Uh, The country was ruined by this. No one was unaffected by the Great Depression, though certainly there were some who escaped largely unscathed. People who had money already, uh, who were in charge of these big industrial concerns, right? Their stock may have fallen some, but they still retained a lot of personal wealth and were able to weather out the storm. Some people had to, you know, sell. Maybe they had a, a second home or something. They had to sell it. But for the most part, they avoided um, these unemployment, these losses. Um, but for the large portion of Americans, everyone was very negatively affected by this. Just some of these statistics, right? In 1929, the unemployment rate was 3.2%, pretty low. Uh, And in 1933, just four years later, it was up to 25%. This is a nationwide stat. That 50% comes from some more specific areas. Uh, 1933, 12.83 million people were unemployed. And that number is actually higher. It doesn't include farmers who are really struggling and in massive amounts of debt. It also doesn't include people who weren't looking for jobs specifically. So those unemployment numbers are actually much, much higher. And 12.8 million people maybe not sound like a lot today, right? We have 300 million people in the United States, but the population itself of the U.S. was much, much smaller during the Great Depression. Between 1929 and 1932, the gross national product was basically cut in half. In 1929, it was 103.1 billion, and in 1932, it was 58 billion, right? So it's massive, massive drop in what the U.S. is making and selling, right? This GNP number. In 1933, 5,000, over 5,000 banks closed. People lost a lot of their money in these closings, right? At this time, if your money was in a bank and that bank closed, right, it couldn't pay you back, you were just out of luck. You didn't get that money back. We'll see that that changes in a couple of years, but for now, these bank closers just screwed people out of their savings. Uh, in total, about a third of the banking system in the United States failed. That's a massive, massive amount of loss. So the causes, why did this all happen? Number of reasons, it's obviously not just one thing, right? Like we talked about with World War One, it wasn't just the shooting of Archduke Franz Ferdinand that caused World War One, but it was sort of, that was just like the trigger, right? That sort of lit this powder keg that had already been in place. The same thing is true for the Great Depression. There wasn't just one thing that precipitated all this, but accumulation, a culmination of a bunch of factors. Uh, in part, it was just sort of part of the capitalist system, right? Booms and busts are just sort of a part of how capitalism works, right? And we've seen this in every capitalist country. There are times when things are going very well and times when things are going very poorly. Uh, depending on you know what country you live, the country might try to do things to sort of stop, you know, keep the highs from being too high and keep the lows from being too lows, but there are still these ups and downs. The problem with the Great Depression is that this low was very, 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 very low dramatically worse than any other ones that had come before it, right? So in a lot of ways, the government wasn't able to deal with it in the way it had dealt with other ones. Yeah, so we're going to look at three sort of major factors of the Great Depression here. One is a stock market crash. You probably have heard about this. Um, The other is internal economic weakness, right? So looking at a bigger system of how the economy was functioning. And then finally, sort of the connections and the international uh, economy that the U.S. was in post-World War One. So the stock market crash, this is sort of the big one. People probably know about this. 
Uh, in the 1920s, the stock market had basically seemed invincible to a lot of people. Just really, I can't lose way to make money, right? And it all was just going up no matter what you invested in. You were guaranteed to get some return on that investment, right? And as a result of this, many people started taking out call loans. If you don't know, a call loan, and I, I'm not a financial planner, I'm not a financial guy, but... If anyone offers you as an individual a call loan, do not take it. A call loan and like only the scammiest of the scammers would offer you this, right? These are really institutional things nowadays, nowadays but in the, these 1920s, 1930s, people were offered them individuals. Call loans is a type of a loan where a lender can demand full payment of that loan at any time, basically. So normally now, you know, if you get a loan for school or a house loan or a mortgage or whatever, right? You have you set in stone what the payment will be, right? You'd be like, okay, after six years or six months or whatever, you will pay back this percentage at this time. With a call loan, the lender can be like, well, I gave you this money two days ago, give it back to me now. Or I gave you this money you know, six months ago, give it back to me now, all of it, with the interest. Uh, they don't usually do that, right? They don't usually do that. They want to, you know, actually get all their money back. Uh, but they can do it, and they usually do it is if their borrower's credit has sort of deteriorated, right? If they know something is happening in the company, that they won't be able to pay it back. Uh, or if sort of what they gave us collateral has lost value, or, you know, any worries about future ability to make payment, right? Generally today, uh, they're mostly done between banks and brokerage firms, that sort of stuff. And so very much not person to person, but at the time, very person to person sort of things. Um, and what happened was, and they used these to buy stocks, right? Because they're like, okay, even if, you know, a person you're taking out a call loan to buy some stocks, like, great, like, that's totally fine. Even if they call it back tomorrow, the stock market will have gone up. I'll have made a little bit of money. And this worked for a couple of years, or, you know, seemed to be working. Uh, but then in September 1929, the Federal Reserve Board raised interest rates, right? So sort of the amount that it costs to take out, to loan, to borrow money from, you know, the Federal Reserve uh, goes up. And this had sort of a cascading effect of making stock prices drop, right? It'd be harder for companies to get money. Uh, and then that hurt people who had taken out call loans, right? Because banks started to take out call loans, seeing that the stock market was dropping. They were worried about the people who had taken those loans out and their ability to pay them back. So they called them in. Uh, and by November, uh, the stock market had lost a third of its value, about $26 billion in total in just a few months, right? Just three months. Because people have to sell you know, their stocks to pay back the, uh, the bank that they borrowed the money from, and this sort of just a very negative cycle started. And the stock market would continue to fall uh, for about three more years until 1932, right? So this is huge, huge, huge crash. So that was one part of it, this huge crash of the stock market. Another part was internal economic weaknesses that really hadn't been, uh, that had been papered over by this massive growth, right? Uh, the agricultural sector in the United States had been struggling for years. This had sort of been covered up by this vast industrial growth, as I mentioned, right? Sort of the national numbers still looked good, despite there being weaknesses in the agricultural sector. Um, a lot of it is just due to, you know, farmers basically growing too much. We get the beginning of the Dust Bowl, right? So crops are starting to fail also. People are losing money that way. Um, but then industrial growth sort of starts to slow down. Companies reaching saturation, even in Europe, right? People were needed to buy a lot of stuff, but then those needs go away as they got that new stuff. So these industrial uh, markets started to fall as well, sort of bearing, once again, the weakness of the agricultural sector. 
as I mentioned last week, right, many people have been buying on credit, using these new credit opportunities to buy cars or radios or refrigerators, and had a huge savings reserve, meaning that when this sort of downturn started, they couldn't afford to keep buying stuff, which made things worse. Right? They didn't have these reserves to rely on because they had to keep paying off the things they had bought on credit. Uh, so making that sort of was another big weakness there. It is really big internal weakness, right? The U.S. economy looks good on paper, but in reality is pretty structurally weak, propped up by this big industrial market. And then when that fails, everything else falls apart. The third major sort of reason uh, is the European economic crash. So as I mentioned, by the end of World War One, the U.S. was sort of fully integrated into the European economy, right? These Europe, uh, these United States manufacturers were selling to Europe. Everybody was, you know, Europeans were buying U.S. goods, fully integrated. I talk about the, the Versailles Treaty, right? Under the terms of the Versailles Treaty, Germany had to pay back all these European countries for the war, right? For, you know, massive amounts of money. Uh, and they couldn't afford it. Their manufacturing had been ruined by the war, right? Sort of all just devastated, all these factories blown up. Uh, they didn't have enough people to work in the, in the factories they had left, right? This entire lost generation. Uh, so they were really, really, really struggling. And so to pay back these, you know, war debts uh, from the Versailles Treaty, they took loans from the United States, uh, from U.S. banks, basically, to try and sort of pay back these onerous penalties that had been placed upon them by the, you know, England and France. So what they did with Germany would take this money from these U.S. banks. And this is all a little bit simplified, but this is pretty much how it worked. Uh, and then they would turn around and just pay that money to the U.K. and France, who then would use that money from Germany to pay their debts to the United States, right? Because they had been, you know, buying a lot of stuff from the United States. The U.S. had loaned them money to help rebuild their countries. So they also had massive debts to the U.S., very unstable system, right? It's just U.S. cash sort of funneling around in this big European U.S. circle, right? This big Atlantic circle. So when the U.S. stock market crashed and interest rates rose, the whole system came down. The U.S. banks could no longer afford to give out these uh, loans to Germany, which meant that Germany could no longer afford to pay uh, U.K. and France, which meant that U.K. and France could no longer afford to pay the U.S. So the whole system came down. This caused more banks to fail, caused more manufacturing concerns to fail, and put the European system basically in a collapse too, right? The Great Depression wasn't just in the United States, but it was pretty like almost worldwide because of this new international system. You see this massive amounts of hyperinflation in Germany where, you know, you see pictures of people just stacking up bills and like burning them for fires because they were worthless. Uh, so you just get this horrible, horrible crash of the German economy. Hoover, for his part, eventually tried to help, right? At the beginning, he took a very laissez-faire approach to it, said this is just part of what it is to be in a capitalist society. We have to deal with this. Some people get unlucky, but if you work hard, you'll be fine. You know, very traditional for Republicans at this time. Really preach, you know, self-reliance, hard work, right? As if, you know, you're struggling, go out and find a job, even though there were no jobs to go find. Um, so, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps approach. But the problem was that people were now looking to the president to do something about the growing problems, right? We've talked about this sort of switch where more and more people have started to decide that the U.S. government government's role was to help them during economic crashes, right? We see Coxie's army is all about that. And the people demanding that the U.S. government actually do something during a downturn, during a crash. 
and so he started doing it, uh, but it was far too late to sort of prevent the, the major problems of the Great Depression. Uh, so only when it was too late did he begin to look for solutions. One of the first things he offered up as a solution to this was voluntary cooperation, quote-unquote, uh, where businesses and the government would work together to make sacrifices to help people. Uh, this didn't work. Business people just refused to do that, to refuse to make sacrifices. Their goal was just make as much profit, continue trying to make profit in this economy, and they were not going to make sacrifices. Sacrifices would have been, you know, maybe paying higher wages or hiring a couple more people that they didn't necessarily need. And they just said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, other efforts uh, by Hoover to try to stop this proved even less helpful than that. One was the Smoot-Hawley tariff. I love saying that, Smoot-Hawley. Uh, Smoot and Hawley were congressmen, Reed Smoot and Willis Hawley. Um, this raised tariffs to like incredibly high levels in 1930. Uh, the attempt was to sort of, you know, get people to buy American. Uh, but it basically what it did was it destroyed businesses ability to sell abroad, right? It just made, uh, sort of the taxes too high on international goods for it to be worth anything. So it you know, actually sort of pushed this d depression even farther, uh, instead of helping it. He did, Hoover did do some good things to help try to alleviate employment, usually very small and very small ways, but helpful to some people, primarily done through private industries, private groups like Red Cross. Uh, so government coordination with groups like Red Cross and then Red Cross would do the heavy lifting. So he still can't, you know, get away from this Republican uh, hands off laissez faire approach near the end of his term. Right. When he saw that he was about to get shellacked in this uh Upcoming election, he started to take bigger, drastic measures, uh, including the use of federal funds to build the Hoover Dam, right? These sort of infrastructure projects to try to get people back on the job. He also started the Reconstruction Finance Corporation in 1932, a government entity that would provide loans to businesses to hire more workers. But this was all very much too little too late. So life during the depression, what did it look like? Uh, we'll talk about sort of urban life and then we'll go to rural life. Uh, urban life first. So in and around cities, people were losing their houses, right? They couldn't afford rent. They couldn't afford mortgage payments. They couldn't afford property taxes. And so they'd still have to find somewhere to live. And so outside in and around cities, people began to build shanty towns that became known as Hoovervilles, right? The sort of idea that Hoover, they're blaming Hoover for this, right? Uh, which is interesting. You know, they're not blaming, you know, big businesses or whatever. They're blaming Hoover, sort of the guy seen as the one in charge. By 1932, there are around a quarter of a million homeless children, right? So that's not just adults, but children, uh, which is a huge, huge amount. Just sort of incredibly sad thing that the United States can't even take care of its children. Uh, the number that was actually that quarter of a million is pretty low, uh, is much higher, because those living in these shanty towns and these Hoovervilles were not considered homeless, despite them being basically homeless, right? Just because they had, you know, maybe a piece of corrugated tin over their head didn't mean they were living in a good house. Uh, black neighborhoods were hit much harder in urban areas than white ones during the Great Depression. Uh, black people were often sort of the last hired, first fired, right? If the company was actually able to hire some people, it would hire white uh, people first. And then if it did even hire black people, they would be the first ones fired if they sort of lost that money. On Chicago's south side, every single black-owned business uh, and bank failed during the Great Depression, right? Every single one failed. 
uh, horrible. There were white businesses and white banks, white-owned banks that stayed around, but all the black-owned ones failed. Across the country, black church, black churches, and black community, black church and community leaders sort of tried to begin creating networks of self-help organizations, saying, obviously. This government, you know, led by white people, isn't going to help us. We don't have black-owned banks anymore to help us. We have to help ourselves. And these sort of self-help networks were able to help some people, but they weren't big sort of systemic uh, solutions to the issue at hand. Others, like Maude White Cats, joined, turned to political activism, joining groups like the Communist Party, uh, as well as other groups also fighting for to try to end, you know, this black poverty coming out of the Great Depression. Hunger was a huge problem throughout urban areas of the United States, uh, regardless of race, right? Everyone faced issues of hunger. Uh, bread lines and bread riots even started to proliferate across the country. Women especially participated in and started these food riots, uh, marching on stores, demanding and just sort of taking food for their families, right? Saying, look, you have this bread here. We can, No one can afford this bread. Uh, we need it to feed our children. We're just going to take it, right? You know, saying, children, you need this milk and bread, right? You have, we're just going to take this if you're not going to, if we can't afford it and you're not going to sell it at prices that we can afford, we're going to take it. Um, farmers, the thing was, and this is why they were mad, right, is that farmers were making enough food, even with, you know, the oncoming dust bowl, even with sort of, you know, this weakness of the agricultural sector, farmers were still producing enough food, but there wasn't enough money to send it to urban markets, right? This whole transportation system had crashed. Railroads uh, were losing out, uh, you know, grain silage were losing out, and so they couldn't, like, they were literally just, you know, sacks and sacks of grain rotting at these train depots because there was no one to take it to the cities to sell. Uh, so it's a horrible situation in a lot of urban areas. Rural life, people also suffered during the Great Depression. Basically, it simply just made life worse than it had been for most of the 20s. Prices, farmers in the 20s had it, had it pretty bad, um, not unlike the cities, which just had it pretty good, right? Prices had dropped precipitously during the 20s and even further during the 1930s, uh, just basically because we were producing too much, basically. And then uh, you get the Dust Bowl, right? In the early 30s, a series of dust storms and drought created even worse farming conditions in the South and the Midwest. The Dust Bowl didn't just happen. It was largely the result of new industrial farming techniques, right, that we talked about. These huge bonanza farms are using all these new industrial techniques. It just created massive soil runoff from over-farming. Uh, created, you know, just sort of ruined all these natural grasses that were keeping the dirt and uh, dust in place because of these new farming techniques. Uh, monocrop systems, right, pr just planting these huge, 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 huge fields of wheat and nothing else uh, were destroyed by plagues, right? So, like, locusts would come in uh, and they would just take over a crop in a minute. Uh, you can just sort of see the devastation. There's pictures of this. It's sort of wild how quickly these locusts come in. Many farmers uh, lost their land to the banks uh, or sold it and moved west to California. Uh, they were known as Okies, uh, and they were certainly not welcome with open arms, right? Uh, they were told to get out, often to, you know, live outside and in shanty towns, outside of towns, because there wasn't enough job for them in California either. Mexicans and Mexican-Americans also suffered greatly, uh, tremendously during the Great Depression. Local politicians, especially in the South and the West, began blaming them for the problems of the Great Depression, uh, saying, you know, they're taking jobs for, for real Americans. And during the Great Depression, between 500,000 and 2 million uh, Mexican and Mexican-Americans, so like Mex like full citizens, 
uh, were deported to Mexico. Highly, highly illegal. Many people were, you know, f- just American citizens, right? They were born, lived their whole lives in the United States. They just, uh, you know, didn't look white, uh, so they were just sent back to to Mexico, uh, sent to Mexico. And then it wasn't just this sort of uh, repatriation; they called it deportation. Uh, There's also just violence against them especially if they were trying to escape this quote-unquote repatriation. It's a horrible time for many people in the United States. I was looking at culture during the Great Depression, right? There's some changes in the way culture is working because of this economic crash. Um, (laughs) You know, sort of in this ironic thing, due to high levels of unemployment, right, many people had much more leisure time. Uh, you know, you can't just spend all day looking for jobs, especially because you know there aren't that many. And so people have more time for leisure. As a result of this, uh, movies, comic books, especially science fiction and action hero, sort of these forms of escapism, became much more popular in the popular culture. Superman comics come out and become very, very popular uh, during the Great Depression. Interestingly enough, many of these entertainments had pretty radical, politically radical messages. A lot of the early uh, comic book creators were sort of radical Jewish guys out of New York. And so you get many people sort of moved to the political left from reading the science fiction, you know, movies, comic book stuff, right? A lot of them talk about these new perfect worlds where things like the economic, you know, crashes of capitalism don't happen. You also get some new sort of Great Depression era movies coming out, like Mr. Deeds Goes to Town and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, both Frank Capra movies. Uh, They're very popular for calling out sort of the problems of corrupt government and big business, right? You know, these sort of heroes standing up against these corrupt politicians in Washington. You also get Charlie Chaplin uh, in his modern times, which sort of satirizes these big businesses. And so the problems of these workers sort of getting, you know, in these movies, literally, literally caught up in sort of these vast machines beyond their control. You also get performers like Zero Mostel, who were sort of openly socialist. Uh, Zero Mostel, uh, known for being in The Producers. Uh, You also get some writers, some very famous writers coming out of the Great Depression. Their work clearly influenced by this economic crash, like John Dewey, Edmund Wilson, Alfred Bingham, sort of critiquing uh, this American capitalist economy, right, from the left. You also get uh, Richard Wright, John Steinbeck, uh, Grapes of Wrath, and others who were writing fiction books, sort of promoting this re-examination of capitalism, uh, occasionally promoting communism, not always, but sort of at least critiquing capitalism. Uh, You also get books like Brave New World, portraying sort of horrifying visions of the future, right, where the government controls everything. Radio became very big um, during the Great Depression, widely, widely popular during the 1930s. Uh, It served as a source of news, but also sort of a source for just entertainment programs, songs, and then also programs like Little Orphan Annie, Amos and Andy, uh, sort of very popular ones. Amos and Andy, also very racist, uh, but still very popular. So this sort of had um, an effect, right? There was some uh, a radicalizing of a lot of people's politics. And this isn't, when I say a lot of people, I don't mean it nearly close to everybody in the United States, not even close to a majority or even sort of that big of a minority, but there was this growing sense of people getting radicalized during this time. Um, the Communist Party was the most popular left-wing organization during the 1930s, uh, outstripped, you know, earlier socialist parties, 
pre-World War I socialist parties, and sort of Communist Party became the big thing. It was led by William Z. Foster and Earl Browder, and they did stuff throughout the country, right? Uh, they led hunger marches, people demanding food. They helped organize tenants, right? So people who were renting, try to get more rights, not to pay as much. Uh, they even made some inroads in organizing in the South, something which hadn't been done before by left organizers, really. Uh, one of the big things they did there was CPUSA helped fund the legal defense of, of the Scottsboro Boys. The Scottsboro Boys is this awful, horrible case in the United States. Uh, nine black boys... Uh, Charlie Weems, Ozzie Powell, Clarence Norris, uh, Andrew and Leroy Wright, two brothers, Olin Montgomery, Willie Roberson, Haywood Patterson, and Eugene Williams. And when I say boys, I mean like they were boys, right? Teens, or just maybe a little bit older, uh, were falsely accused of and tried uh, for raping a white woman in 1931. Uh, only four of these guys had known each other before their arrest. So it was a horrible, horrible, horrible case, right? Four of them um, had to go through four whole trials about this. Uh, the first two of those trials, they were uh, given death sentences, but those death sentences were overturned by the Supreme Court. Um, the last two trials, saw four of the now men um, locked up sort of with long, long life sentences, despite there being no evidence at all of them doing this, and they didn't actually do this. Clarence Norris uh, would eventually receive a pardon uh, from Governor George Wallace of Alabama. George Wallace, famously, like, incredibly racist uh, guy, but sort of had you know, faced a lot of pressure to do this in 1976, right? So he's in jail for over 40 years for something he didn't do. And Clarence Norris would outlive all the other Scottsboro boys, uh, dying in 1989 at the age of 76. Uh, the other uh, three who had ended up in jail, uh, Patterson Weems and Andy Wright, were issued posthumous pardons in 2013, sort of of, in some ways, bringing a, a, an end to this sort of no, notorious case of racial injustice in U.S. history, but obviously not enough, right? Uh, so that way, uh, by helping fund this defense of these Scottsboro boys, uh, the Communist Party made a lot of inroads into the black community. It wasn't just the Communist Party uh, sort of radicalizing politics. You also get something called the Bonus Army. Uh, one of the most influential protests in American history. Uh, in 1932, 15,000 World War I veterans marched on Washington, D.C. They had been scheduled as a result of their service in World War I uh, to get paid bonuses uh, in the 1940s. But they said, we can't wait till the 1940s. We need these bonuses now. So they marched on Washington to demand those bonuses. On July 28th, uh, while these protesters were in D.C., federal troops burned down their encampment, uh, killing two of these veterans and injuring hundreds more. This was sort of the final nail in uh, Hoover's re-election coffin, right? He'd been running for re-election. Uh, the fact that he attacked and killed uh, veterans who would simply wanted some money. People, you know, fought for this country, right? They had and killed them, uh, that's sort of, that was the end of Hoover, right? That's just something you cannot do. So the 1932 election, FDR, who was at that time the governor of New York, wiped the floor with Hoover, right? Completely uh, destroyed him, just like one of the biggest election victories of all time. He promised this sort of new way forward, right? Uh, a new change, a new attempt to sort of fix this Great Depression. Uh, but between his election and his taking office, the Great Depression had only worsened. And by the time he actually took office, was able to do stuff, people were starting to wonder if Roosevelt really was the answer to any of their problems. 
So that's it for our uh, podcast on the Great Depression. Just some conclusions. The Great Depression was caused by a number of things, uh, none of them on their own enough to cause the Great Depression, but when taken together, sort of devastating enough to do so. People suffered in the United States across all demographic lines, uh, but black people, Mexican Americans, suffered more than most. And the political American political scene seemed to be shifting left by the election of FDR, right? There seemed to be some sort of swell of radicalizing force in the United States. All right, that's it for today. Next week, we'll talk about the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt. And have a great rest of your day.